Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 21 is what we're going to be looking at today. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for which the prize of the sorry, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is, a, um, as you can already see, a really full, deep, awesome passage. And we're going to take some time to deal with a couple of things from where we left off last week. You see, last week we looked at how one of Paul's statements about his desire to know Christ was that he wanted to know the power of his resurrection. And we really dug into that last week. Tonight we need to look at the second part of his statement there. He said that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I'm just going to tell you right now, you cannot experience the power of Jesus' resurrection in your life apart from going through suffering. They are linked. It's no accident that Paul says, I want to experience the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. Folks, you, can experience, you cannot experience the power of, God, of God, Jesus' resurrection apart from suffering. Now, let me just kind of remind you of a couple of things you might have heard me say in the past. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, in this world you will have trouble. trouble. Okay, yeah, we know that. But do we know that the Bible also says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow. Each day has what? Trouble. Enough trouble of its own. Folks, in this world we live in, there's going to be struggles. Yet, unfortunately, many in Christendom have tried to turn the gospel into you get saved and there's this yellow brick road all the way to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. Not long after Paul was saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, did Jesus say to Ananias, who was going to heal him of blindness, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. We in our churches today try to design our churches so that we focus on the positive. And there are some big churches in this country right now that they build their big churches by just focusing on the positive. Folks, first of all, you can't preach the gospel unless you deal with sin. Isn't that the whole point? So how could you be preaching the gospel if you say you're not even going to deal with sin or talk about sin? There's this one famous preacher who said in an interview nationally, everything in the world is so negative and so, so such a downer. I just want to focus on the positive. You can't even preach the gospel if that's going to be how you look at it. But at the same time, every one of us, if we're honest to ourselves, every one of us kind of subconsciously wants a life without pain, a life without struggle, a life without any kind of a worry. We 
whenever trouble comes, our first thought is, how can I get rid of it fast? Or why did this happen? And so what I want to do tonight is I want to remind you of the fact that the Bible, Jesus said, you're going to have struggles. But you will experience the power of my resurrection through these times of struggle. You know, it's interesting to me how we want the power of his resurrection, yet we forget that his resurrection required a death first. Have you ever thought about it that way? When we talk about the power of Jesus' resurrection, why was Jesus resurrected? Because he died. Because of struggle, because of sin. We a lot of times talk in the Christian life of the deeper walk. To have that close walk with God. Excuse me, with God. We want to have that deeper experience. And my prayer is that you desire that. As you see here, Paul says he wants that. He wants to know him in a deeper way. He's straining toward what's ahead. And if he says, if you're mature, that should be your attitude. But too many think that the deeper walks just comes through just spending time alone with him. And you have this wonderful experience and you have the deeper walk. Let me just tell you what the Bible teaches, that the deeper walk comes through struggle. And I want to remind you of that from a bunch of passages tonight. So go with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm just going to let the scripture talk for itself for a little bit here. We're going to take a look at five different passages that kind of lay this out for us. Because this is a part of preaching we don't hear much in our churches. And I just I want you to hear today what the scripture says so that you won't be surprised when trouble hits you. First Peter chapter four. Look at verses 12 through 19. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, I'm not going to turn to this one passage, but you remember in 2 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 12, around verse 9, because of the surpassingly great revelations that he had received, being able to see the third heaven, paradise, things that he wasn't even allowed to talk about. Because of this, God gave him what? A thorn in his flesh a tormentor from Satan, and he pleaded three times for God to take it away. There's nothing wrong with asking God to take it away. Don't misunderstand me when I said earlier that our first thought is take it away. There's nothing wrong with asking Jesus himself even said, if it's possible to remove this cup so I don't have to drink it, please take it away. That's okay. But what was God's answer to him? That's right. For my power will be experienced through your weakness. And that's why Paul then said he totally changed his attitude toward that thorn. He no longer saw it as a tormentor from Satan, but he saw it as a gift from God. And he says, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to rejoice in my weakness. I'm going to rejoice in my suffering. And I'm just, it's going to keep me reminded that apart from him, I can do nothing. To keep me from falling into thinking that I'm actually better than others. I'm just going to embrace this and say, Lord, I want the power of your resurrection. 
Peter here says there are times we're going to suffer because of our faith, because of the fact that we're a Christian. And I'm going to take that to a deeper level. Yes, he might be just at this point talking about those who are losing their property and were being put to death because of their faith in Christ. And that's a part of it. And as you know, right now, our brothers and sisters all over the globe are experiencing that in many different ways. And, and he says, don't be surprised when this happens. At the same time, there's a deeper understanding to the fact that we as Christians as followers of Christ are going to experience suffering. And, and Paul talked about it in an interesting way in Romans chapter 8. Right in the middle of the passage where he's dealing with how nothing will separate us from God's love. I want you to take a look at some really bizarre statements that he seems to make. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament. But in Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 31. Paul says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? I'm going to just kind of read it this way so that you'll understand what, I'm, what he's saying here. Shall distress separate us from the love of Christ? Shall persecution separate us from the love of Christ? Shall famine separate us from the love of Christ? Shall nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then he answers his own question by whether or not these things will separate us from the love of Christ. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. By the way, that covers everything right there. For all of you who are looking for the loophole. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why in Romans 5, as we looked at last time, Paul says we have been since we have been justified through faith in Christ, we are at peace with God. And we not only understand that we're at peace with God, we can now stand in this grace and we can boldly approach the throne and we can rejoice, Paul says in Romans 5 there, in our sufferings because we know that the sufferings aren't tied to our sin and God being mad at us. That's already been dealt with. Therefore, if our father has said, I'm going to allow this suffering. He has a good purpose. And folks, in order for us to experience the power of his resurrection, you have to, as we looked at last week, and I'm just going to remind you of that, get over that first hurdle and understand this isn't because I'm sinning and God's punishing me. It's actually because he's using this to accomplish his purposes and all his purposes are good. As the Hebrew writer in chapter 12 says, all discipline is unpleasant at the time. He didn't say some of it is. It all is. Why? Because our flesh doesn't want someone else to be in control. How many of us have ever really thought about, and we, Michael and I and Dave talked about this today as we're sitting around after a minute motion. How many of us have ever really thought about the fact that in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us the model for prayer, the template for prayer, who is he teaching us to pray to? The Father. Our Father who art in heaven. Later in that model for prayer, in which we're to talk to the Father, he teaches us to pray this. Father, lead me not into temptation. Wait a minute. James chapter 1 verse 13 says that God doesn't tempt anyone. 
then why is Jesus teaching us to go to the Father and say, Father, don't lead me into temptation when the Bible clearly says God doesn't tempt anyone? Here's why. Because the Father determines whether or not Satan's even allowed to tempt you. Any attack on you from the enemy, any attack on you from the enemy has to go through your Father's permission box first. And that's why the second part of that is, and what? But deliver us from the evil one. Lord, I'm going to ask that you keep the enemy from having his way in my life at all. But if you choose for your godly and good and loving purposes to say, yes, I need your victory. You give me victory over him. And folks, you've got to understand that one of the greatest tools that God has for his purposes of molding and shaping us is, sounds crazy, the enemy. Erwin Lutzer, back up at Moody Church in Chicago, preaches a great sermon called God's Satan. And how God is controlling and sovereign, and he's on a leash. Yet God's using him, even though he thinks he has all this authority, he's using him for his purposes, and God controls you. Go back and look at the story of Job. Was Satan allowed to do anything he wanted to Job? Not until the father said, and whenever the father said, he set the parameters. So for us to experience the power of his resurrection, to experience his grace in the time of struggle, you have to first get over that hurdle and understand that even though I don't like this, even though I don't want it, even though I've been begging God to take it away, he has seen fit to leave it. Therefore, he has a purpose and it's good. Okay, God, I've asked you to remove it and there's nothing wrong with me asking because Jesus did the same. Now I'm saying would you demonstrate your reality in my life through this? Now, some suffering comes because of just our faith in Christ and those who would go after us. Jesus said, if they went after me, they're going to go after you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. But some suffering is also, as Paul said here, because we are God's children and God uses suffering to shape and discipline his children. Did you not do the same thing with your kids? Were there not times in your discipline of them and your shaping and molding that you used things that they considered painful? But it was best. Well, at the time, they didn't think you were right or fair or just or good. But they hopefully came to realize later on you had their best interests at heart. They might not understand it at the time. We need to get over that point beforehand. We need to understand the power and the truth of the word of God. And we need to believe it before he gives us the discipline. That's why Paul and Silas were singing praises at midnight in the, in the prison. They were doing what God told them to do. They didn't pull out the Roman citizen card in Acts 16. And then they were beaten. And they're singing and praising God. Why? Because they understood this has nothing to do with whether or not we've been good or bad. God's got a plan and a purpose. So let's just worship him in it. Did they enjoy the beating? No. Did they enjoy the imprisonment? No. But they were also saying, Lord, we trust you in this and we're going to keep our eyes on you. I could go on and on, but let me read to you. Go back to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 16 and 17. Again, be reminded, for his sake, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For his sake. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit, Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirits that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. We like that. That sounds good. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I like the sound of that. Provided we what? Suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, let me just kind of lay it out for you scripturally. If you think you're going to walk through life with no suffering of any kind, please don't hear me wrong. Some people go through more than others. That's God's plan and he has his purposes. I don't think any of us as public experience are all going to hear what God said about Paul, about I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. But I can tell you this much there in this life, you will have trouble. 
And each day is going to have some kind of trouble. And if you think you can live a, a Christian life with no struggle at all. Bible says you're only his heir and going to receive glory provided we suffer with him. So don't be surprised at this fiery trial that's come. Don't be surprised that things don't go smooth. It's, that's, a, that's a part of how it is to live in this world. Well, let me, let me give you another one. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verses 10 through 13. 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 13. Paul says to Timothy, you have, verse 10 of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Doesn't mean he didn't experience them, but he, God delivered him through them. Yet from them all God rescued me, he said. And then he said, Indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who gets out of that? Well, actually, there are some that get out of it. Those who don't desire to live a godly life. Folks, you do understand. It's possible for you to go to heaven and be saved and not have this kind of a life. But I don't think we really understand the reality of heaven the reality of the eternal state and the fact that the Bible teaches that we will be rewarded for eternity according to what God has done in our lives that we let him do. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we need to build after this. There's no other foundation that can be laid such as already been laid, which is faith in Christ. And then after this foundation has been laid, we have to consider carefully how we build. You could use wood, hay or straw, gold, silver, precious stones. What does the scripture say? Those who build after salvation, just using wood, hay, or stubble, what's going to happen to them? It's going to be burnt up. You go and double check me. It says he himself will suffer loss, though he will be saved as one escaping through the flames. And some of you heard me teach on this before. You picture, I've always pictured the Olympics. I picture the guy doing the Fosbury flop over the high bar. And you've seen those guys do, and they run and they jump, and they flip over backwards, and they barely make it over. Their backside hits the bar, and it jiggles, and everybody goes, ah! But then the bar stays and they're like, oh, we made it. I always jokingly say, if you're in heaven and someone smells like smoke, that's the one. <laughs> but here's what I want you to see, though. Listen to what it says. He will suffer loss. I don't know fully how this all plays out, but I can tell you this much. I don't want to spend eternity suffering loss. When my Lord said to store up treasure in heaven. And that one day I'm going to stand before him at the judgment seat and he's going to weigh what has been eternally valuable that I'll be rewarded for and what I've missed out on because I was disobedient. It has nothing to do with my sin. I've already had that taken care of at the cross. And so Paul says he makes it his goal to please the Lord because I'm going to stand before him one day. So all who desire to live a godly life in this life will be persecuted. Oh, years ago, I was pastor in Chicago and there was this man who used to be actively involved in the church. And I was a young pastor and he used to be involved in leadership even. And he just kind of phased out. And so I went to visit him. And uh, 
I said to him, I said, I understand you used to be in leadership here and you used to be one of the stronger people and now you've kind of phased out. He said, I'll tell you why. He said, because I found out that when you live for the Lord, Satan's allowed to attack. And I'm tired of fighting in him. So I've just decided it'll be easier for me if I don't live for the Lord. Oh, by the way, the Bible says we can even question whether or not that person even knows the Lord, first of all. Second of all, even if he does know the Lord, the enemy is looking for someone to what? And I can tell you, I'm not going to go into the details. I can tell you right now that individual has been devoured by the enemy. He is alive, but he's miserable. He's lost his wife. He's lost his kids. He's lost his health. And he's one of the most miserable human beings you've ever met in your entire life. And he thought that was the easy road. Well, Jim, right after that, the suffer persecution says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. You got deceiving it. Deceiving and being deceived. You got that it. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. It's not. That's the whole point. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that out. That's what I'm trying to say to you. Don't think, well, I don't want to live for God because then I'll suffer. You don't get it. Yeah. Keep reading the next verse. Those who don't live for the Lord are going to be deceived. Well, and they're going to go worse to worse. Yes. And why was Peter able to sing in prison? Because God's taking over those problems. That's when you experience the power of his resurrection, where he gives you the grace in the midst of it that surpasses understanding. The peace of God, you experience things in those situations. And folks, I can't tell you any more than talk to everyone in this room that has gone through these types of things. I just found out Today, that someone in our community that I know had a child commit suicide. A godly individual, a leader in his church, came home to find his youngest daughter had killed herself. There are those who have been through this. And you know that in those times, you need the grace of God. Some of us that have not been through those types of things can't come alongside a brother at that time and say, I understand. We don't understand. But I can promise you that those who have been through those things and have experienced the power of his resurrection can walk alongside of a brother like that and say, I've been there. And let me tell you, God will walk you through it. Amen. Let me give you one more. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 7 through 11. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Does that sound familiar? What Paul was talking about in Romans 8. For Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Folks, you want to experience the power of his resurrection? Stop running from trouble. There's nothing wrong with asking God to remove it. There's nothing wrong with trying to get it taken away. But if God has seen fit to say no, you need to embrace it and then say, OK, Lord, demonstrate in my life and through me what you want to do in this time. 
It's not something I wished for. It's not something I've asked for. Yet you, who are a loving father, has chosen this for me. Therefore, I am going to say, accomplish your will. Not my will, but yours. And that's when you will experience a closeness and a walk with him that you will never experience unless you go through those struggles. Now, again, like I said, we want the power of his resurrection, but we forget that his resurrection required a death first. That, so it is with us. We have to understand that our death is to ourself and to living for this life. Isn't that what the scripture says in Philippians? Let's go back to Philippians and look at what we've already been through in chapter 2. Look at it again through, at verses 5 through 9. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, as you know, it goes on and says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, and that the name of Jesus every knee is going to bow. But this mind needs to be in us. We need to be saying no to our flesh. We need to be saying no to our desires, to what we want in this life, and willing to lay it down for the purposes of what God is wanting to accomplish in and through us. Now, for some of us, that might be that God has you end up being a martyr because of your faith, as are happening for brothers and sisters in parts of the globe. And it may happen here one day if Jesus tarries. For others, it may just simply be you saying no to your desire not to forgive someone, and you say no to your flesh and for this life, and you go and you forgive. And that, that whatever it is that God's asking of you that you don't want to do because your flesh doesn't want to do it, let's just begin there. Let's just begin there. Because I can promise you, every single one of us are right now going through things that God is saying, here's what I want you to do. And you say, Lord, I don't want to. I can promise you. Oh, not me, Jim. I want to do everything the Lord wants me to do. You're lying. <laughs> because your flesh is just as alive as anybody else's. And if Jesus, who was God, didn't want to do something the Father wanted him to do, um, don't tell me you want to do everything the Lord wants. Too many of us pray this prayer. Oh, Lord, not my will, but yours. Jesus didn't pray that prayer. He said, here's my will. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Every one of us have things that God's asking of us that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. Yet God has a purpose and a plan. And it, let's just start there when it comes to experiencing the power of his resurrection. Let's just start with in the areas that he's working with you on where he's asking you to take a step of obedience to do something that you don't want to do or to stop doing things that he doesn't want you to do. Let's just start there and have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. Make yourself a servant and obedient to the Lord in this area that he's talking to you about. Oh, and then you'll experience the power that he has available to us. Um, go to Romans. Well, you don't have to go there. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, you know. Paul says, I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? Present your what? Your bodies, your flesh, as a living sacrifice. Which is your what? Depends on your translation. Reasonable service or spiritual act of worship. And don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, which is what? You can sum it up in me first, can you not? Me first. Just look at the TV advertisements. Obey your thirst. You deserve a break today. Have it your way. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> All the way through, you get to call the shots. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, which, by the way, your flesh wants as well. 
but be transformed by the renewing. And the Greek word actually called translated renewing actually means daily renewing of your mind. Folks, we are told daily to lay ourselves on the altar and say, Lord, this is I'm giving this situation to you. Not what I want. I, here's what I want, but I'm going to lay that aside for your purposes. Go to Colossians chapter 3. We're in Philippians here. Go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then, and some translations say since then, and I think they're both good. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Where he's seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What did Paul say in the section we're, we're looking at tonight and for the next few weeks? He said, verse 17 of chapter 3 of Philippians, brothers, join me in imitating and in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example we, you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. I know there's a book out there that says your best life now. I don't want my best life now. I'm not living for this world. Some of you are probably fighting with siblings over inheritance. Let it go. But I deserve. Ooh, don't go there. You really don't want to live a life where you get what you deserve, do you? <laughs> well, they're ignoring my rights. Jesus laid them all down for your sake and my sake. Folks, it isn't about this life. It's about the next one. You could be in a dispute with your neighbor and you could be legally right. But God says, I don't want you to be living for this life. I want you to be living for the one to come and maybe be praying for the neighbor's life to come. And don't, for that sake, do damage to your neighbor whom I died for as well over a property issue. I'm literally just throwing some things out. I think God's laying on my heart right now. You see, there's lots of ways that we good Christians get focused on this life when they don't even realize it. Well, how come I didn't get the promotion? I deserved it. And we get so focused on this life that we lose sight of the fact that God's word all along has said, since we've been raised with Christ, set your minds there. Let me ask you an honest question that I know you know the right answer to, but we don't always act like it. Does God love you? Is he for you or against you? Well, first of all, how do you know that? He said so, and he's already proven it through Christ. If he died for you while you were his enemy, how much more? All right, so God's for you. Has he not also promised to meet every need and bless you with extra sometimes? Is he capable of providing whatever it is you need? Is he limited in any way? Then why do we start looking to man to fix our situation? That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and says, why are you Christians going to court against each other? Hello? Do you realize how silly this is? When we think that we have to follow man's ways to get things taken care of. Well, I mean, I mean let's, let's just get this taken care of. This needs to be dealt with. This, this has not been handled properly. What if God says, well, as Paul says in that passage in Corinthians, he says, so what if you're wronged? So what? 
you're not living for this life, you can let a lot of the stuff that's giving you belly aches go. You can even convince yourself that you're four times 20. <laughs> and everybody online says, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> Should have been here for Rita's 80th birthday party. <laughs> Folks, in this life, there's going to be struggles. May they be used for God's purposes to bring you closer to him. Not away. Isn't that interesting? When people go through struggles, maybe an unwanted pregnancy in their family that they're ashamed of, or different things that happen, or they struggle with alcohol, or they have different issues. Did you ever notice what people's first reaction is? It's to pull away, isn't it? It's to isolate themselves from the rest of the, of the body. To, to pull. God's purposes are to bring closeness and healing and reconciliation and growth and maturity. And we listen to the enemy when he says, pull away. You want to experience the power of his resurrection? You want a deeper walk? Embrace the struggle. Say, God, you've allowed it for a reason. Let's do it. It's not just do it. It's let's do it. Just making sure Michael didn't hear me wrong over there. All right. We got time, and I really want to get to this. Look at the rest of verse uh, 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, folks. I've been preaching for 30 years. I have been studying God's word for 30 years and preaching it and teaching it for 30 years. And I have never, ever dove into this verse ever. Paul says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, let me just tell you right now, you go online and you start to Google this verse. You're going to run across so much false teaching out there. People are going to take one verse and build a whole doctrine around one verse. And again, like I've told you, if it doesn't match the context and match the whole of Scripture, it cannot be the correct interpretation. And there are people that are trying to use this verse to say you can lose your salvation. There's this people that are trying to talk about different things when it comes to eschatology that are all whacked. Let me just tell you this much. First of all, did Paul believe that he wasn't going to be saved? No, the same guy that in the context here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, I'm confident of the very thing that he who began this good work in you will bring it to completion. Is, is he going to say, I'm really sure that you're going to be saved, uh, you know, Neil, but I'm not so sure about me? He's not saying that, is he? No, as you actually keep reading, look, look in this section here in, at, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. He said, not that I've already obtained this, and that's what we're going to get to, what's this, this resurrection from the dead that he's talking about, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what, forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way, and if on anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And then he talks about these brothers that are living for the, this world and their flesh. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship, does he say is hopefully in heaven or is in heaven? Is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will, not possibly, not hopefully, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So just even in the context was Paul saying he hopes he's saved and he hopes he's going to go to heaven? 
No, so it must mean something else. And of course, if we took the time and you've heard me talk about it before, many other places that Paul say, you've been given the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You are his. You are Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And you also, when you heard the word of truth, you were included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, which is the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance till the praise of his glory when he comes. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Paul was not saying that when he hopes to attain to the resurrection of the dead, that I hope I'm risen from the dead. I hope I make it to heaven. Paul knew he was already there. He'd already gotten to see it. He wasn't allowed to talk about it. He's already been allowed to visit it. He knew he was going. So he must mean something else. And this is where I then started to dig into this. And I started to, well, let me put it this way. I'll, I'll read it to you how I wrote in my notes. Paul is saying that even though Jesus had already made him his own, as he just saw there in verses 12 and following, he wants everything that will be or can be his in the future time called the resurrection of the righteous. And what Paul starts to get into here, and in the time that we have tonight, we're going to dive into this a little bit. We'll come back to it next week to get some more. Paul says, I already know I'm going to heaven. But there is a resurrection of the righteous. And as you're about to see, there's also a resurrection of the unrighteous. There is a time when the whole world at different phases and different times, and we'll lay that out for you tonight, gets a new body and they live forever. Folks, you do understand everybody lives forever. Christians aren't the only ones that live forever. I'm going to show you scripturally that even the unrighteous, the dead who are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire, live forever. Oh, they also get a new body. See, right now, if you were to take your body and be put in fire, what would happen to it? Eventually disappear, correct? The bodies that go into the lake of fire do not get burnt up. They experience torment forever and ever, but they're not destroyed. In the fire, as Jesus called and said, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. He's going to, and we'll lay this out for you, he knows that he's been teaching it all along. If you go back and look at his trials when he's defending himself amongst the Jews before the people in Rome, he keeps talking about this resurrection of the dead. And he was a Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisees believed in a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducee group did not believe there was a resurrection of the dead. Paul is saying that even though Jesus has already made him his own, he, Paul's saying he wants everything that will be or even can be his in the future time called the resurrection of the righteous. When he talks about attaining to the resurrection of the dead, he's saying there is a time coming when I'm going to get my new body and I will be rewarded for eternity. And I want everything that I can get at that moment because it'll be mine forever and ever. And that's what I'm living for now. But these people are preaching Christ and they're making me look bad. Who cares? Gospel's being preached. It ain't about me. Paul, how do you even know if you're getting out of that prison? I may not. I'm not worried about that because if I die, I get to go be with Christ. And if I stay, that's more fruitful, rewarded labor. He ain't living for this world. He's living for the next. So let's take a few moments tonight and look at God's teaching on these coming resurrections. I'm just going to tell you straight up. I was raised in a church up in New England that taught only that we die and go to heaven. They didn't teach on the rapture. They didn't teach on the millennial kingdom or the fact that there's even going to be a resurrection of everyone, the righteous and the unrighteous. It was just kind of like you die and you go to heaven. They didn't even talk about a resurrection body. They never even talked about the different phases that are still to come in God's eternal plan that have been clearly laid out in Scripture. 
These resurrections, though, come in stages and in a certain order as revealed in Scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 and look at verses 12 through 26. Now, Paul's dealing here in this letter to the Corinthian church with people who are saying there was no resurrection of the dead. He says, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain and your faith is in vain. We are seen, even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. By the way, let me stop you real quick and clarify when we talk about the resurrection of the dead. We're not talking the resurrection like Lazarus had or Jairus' daughter had. What kind of body did Jairus' daughter and Lazarus get when they rose from the dead? Same one they had when they went into the tomb. The resurrection we're talking about here is not someone that came back from the dead for a time period and then died again. We've even seen that happen in our lifetime with the technology we have today, people that kind of leave us and then they go boop with the shock paddles and they, hey, I'm back, you know, kind of a thing. We're not talking that because you get the same body you had. When we're talking about this resurrection and the resurrections, we're talking about a new body, different from the one before. So when we talk about the resurrection of the dead, and I'll show you a scripture here real close in this passage that proves that the very first one that ever had this type of resurrection was Jesus himself. So when we're talking about resurrection from the dead, we're not talking Lazarus. We're not talking uh, Jairus's daughter. All right. He says, verse 15, we're even found to be mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not yet not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ, who have died and gone to be with the Lord, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen closely. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. All right. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, he's talking about the rapture, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And, and by the way, this, his coming involves the rapture and the second coming, and I'll explain that in a second. Each in his own order, verse 23, each in his own order, Christ at the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, death has already been defeated, but it hasn't been destroyed yet. You know how you can prove it? People are still dying. <laughs> People are still dying. Death has been defeated, but people, it has not been destroyed. There is still death. Now, in here, Paul starts to lay out for us that there is a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And I'm going to lay that out even more clearly. But there's an order of these resurrections. And I'm going to show you it's broken down into two groups called the first resurrection and the second resurrection. There's the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous. Now, the resurrection of the righteous, even according to this, doesn't all happen at once. 
It comes in stages. And that's why I want you to understand. And people try to say, well, the Bible only talks about Jesus coming again. That's true. But if you look closely, you'll notice that Jesus' second coming has two parts. You see, when the Bible talked about the Messiah coming, we didn't understand. It was there in Scripture, but we missed it, that he was coming twice. He came the first time to do what? To save us, to die for the sins of the world, the suffering servant. He was bruised for our iniquities, crushed for our transgressions. He had, the Bible talked about the Messiah coming, but they missed the fact that his coming had two parts. The coming the first time to die and then to go back and then to come again and set up his kingdom. They thought his first coming was going to be when he set up his kingdom. They didn't understand that his coming had two parts. Most Christians today misunderstand that his second coming has two parts. And I'm going to show you scripturally. His second coming has two parts. First, to gather those who are the church and to take them to be with him. And then he comes and sets up his kingdom. And not only that, the resurrection of the righteous has parts, more than two. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, the Bible says here, who's the first one to get their new body? Jesus. He's the first fruits. All right. He's the first one. Now, this is a very confusing passage for most people. I'm not going to take the time to really dive into it too much because we really don't have time to there. And it'll be a rabbit we can chase, but we can't catch it. And it won't taste good because we can't catch it. <laughs> as you've heard me say before, I got no problem with chasing rabbits. As long as you can catch them. And when you catch them, they taste good. This is a rabbit you can chase all you want. You ain't going to catch it. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, look at verses 50 through 53. Now you have to look closely at this passage as well. In verse 50 of Matthew 27 says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs when? After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is the only place this is recorded. It's not referred to anywhere else in the scripture. Only Matthew records it. It is truth, because every word of scripture is God-breathed. But we have to be honest and say we don't really know a whole lot more than this. But it appears that there are those who, for God's purposes, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, got up in their new bodies, went around and appeared to many, and most likely went on to be with him. Can't help you any more than that. There's lots of people that have lots of theories about all this kind of stuff, but they're guessing. Yes, sir, go ahead. It just says the bodies were raised. It doesn't say that they... Well... Yeah, but the, the bodies are, they're not, your, your body and my body is not going to walk around without us, without us being in it. Well, if he wants it to, that's true. But it, no, it appears this is a resurrection. This is a resurrection here that's listed. And it, God has, remember, God has a purpose and he does it. We think we got him all figured out. Anybody tells you, well, this is how it's all going to be in the end times. This is going to happen and that's going to happen. You know what? There are things that have been clearly stated, but there's also parts of the end times that we have to say, don't know. Gog and Magog, that battle. Is it going to happen before the rapture, after the rapture, during the millennial king? I mean, sorry, at the end of the tribulation period? The answer is we don't know. There's lots of people who have great speculation, and some might be right, some might be wrong. We might be all wrong. We know there's a battle coming called the Battle of Gog and Magog, and there's lots of stuff in it. But we really don't know exactly, because I could show you how it looks like clearly it's going to happen before, yet I could also show you how it looks like it's going to happen in the end of the tribulation period. We don't know. All I know is, is after his resurrection, there were some people who came up, 
out of their graves Old Testament saints. Now, I can prove to you scripturally, though, it wasn't all the Old Testament saints. It just said some of the holy saints. And I also can prove it to you from Scripture that the Bible says that the next resurrection is going to be those at the rapture. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through uh, 55, he says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. We're all going to be changed in the moment and twinkling in the eye. And it talks about how our bodies are going to be changed. We're going to come up to be with the Lord. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we who are alive are going to be caught up to be with them. It talks about that also in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who fall asleep and, 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 and like grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died. We also believe, and he rose from the dead. We also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We tell you that from the Lord's own, words own, Lord, own words, that we who are alive at that time, he'll be the shout of the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive at that time will be called to be with him, and we'll go be with the Lord. John chapter 14, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or mansions, whatever translation you want to use. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come and take you to you so you can be with me where? Where I'm going. That's a picture of the rapture, folks. When he comes in his second coming, he's coming down to be with us. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to take you to be with me be where I am. The Bible even says that he's going to rapture his church. It's very clear. And so that's when we get our new bodies. For those who have fallen asleep in him, they're already with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but they haven't gotten their eternal body yet. That happens at the rapture. That's a part of the first resurrection. But there's also at the, well, go to Revelation 20. Let me show you what I'm talking about. At the end of the tribulation period, the Bible also tells us is when the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints are going to get their new bodies. Now, if you're going to ask me why God does it in this way, I have to tell you, I don't know. I just know what the scripture says, and we let scripture speak for itself. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for how long? thousand years and he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the hasit thousand years were ended and after he must be released for a little while then I saw thrones and seated on them were those who had whom the authority to judge was committed by the way who's that who's that that's us that's the church all through the scripture says that he's going to give us the right to sit on thrones with him and we're going to rule and reign with Christ if we endure with him we'll also reign with him we're already there we're already there he saw those whom the authority to judge was committed, and also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. When's that happening? During the tribulation period. They came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? Now he says the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released. Folks, let me just remind you, how many times does God keep saying a thousand years? Oh, it's symbolic. No, it's not. It's literal. There's going to be a literal millennial kingdom where Jesus comes and rules and reigns on the earth. Listen, the Bible shows us that at the rapture, those of us who are alive at that time will be caught up to be with him. The people that have already gone, who are part of the church, their bodies are going to come up out of the ground and we go be with the Lord. And we've been given a, a, a set of responsibilities in the kingdom to come. Amen. 
There's a group of tribulation saints that are killed during the tribulation. You remember, we see in Revelation chapter 6, they, the souls of those who are under the altar. And they say, how long until you avenge our blood? And they're given white robes and they're told to wait, what? A little longer until the full number of those who are going to be killed for their faith during that time period. And that's when they'll get their bodies. At the end of the tribulation period, the, old, sorry, the, the tribulation saints are resurrected and they get their new bodies and they're going to reign with Christ as well. Now you say, Jim, it doesn't list the Old Testament saints here at all. Good. If you're thinking that, you've been paying attention. This isn't where it tells us about the Old Testament saints, but it's been here all along back in Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, listen closely to verses 1, 2, and 3, and then we're going to jump to verse 13. Daniel 12, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Daniel's told this, so who are your people? This is the nation of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. All right, by the way, who are we talking about here? The Jews, right? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteous like the righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Here we see that the righteous are going to be raised and the unrighteous are going to be raised. It doesn't mean at the same time, because we just saw in 1 Corinthians 15 and also Revelation chapter 20, that there's a resurrection for the first resurrection of the righteous. There's a second resur resurrection, which is only for the unrighteous, and that's not till the end of the millennial kingdom. But look at verse 13. Look at what Daniel's told. He says, but go your way till when? The end. And just prior to this, he's listed all the days of the tribulation period. Go your way till the end and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place when? At the end of days. Remember, Daniel was given the prophecy in chapter 9 about the 77s are decreed for your people and the city of Jerusalem. Have the 77s been fully completed yet for the nation of Israel? No, that won't happen until the end of the tribulation period because there's that one last seven. If you don't remember, go back online and look at the Revelation study when I talked about that. Here's the thing. Daniel's told you're going to go. He's in the presence of the Lord. But he doesn't get his body until the end of the tribulation period at the end of days. The tribulation saints will be get resurrected. The Old Testament saints will be resurrected. There is phases of this resurrection of the righteous. When we get our new bodies, Jesus is the first fruits. It appears, I can't tell you anymore, it appears in Matthew 27 that there was a few that God for His purposes chose to resurrect for His revealing Himself that this was all tied together. Then we know that the Bible says at the rapture, we will be where the sons of God will be revealed. We get our new bodies. We go be with Him for a time period. We also know at the end of the tribulation period, even though the tribulation saints are crying out saying how long, they're told to wait until the rest of them are killed. At the end of the thousand years, I'm sorry, at the end of the tribulation, the beginning of the thousand years, they're resurrected so they can reign with them. The Old Testament saints are reigned at that time. And blessed and holy are those who are part of the first resurrection. It has phases. The unrighteous dead are resurrected when? At the end of the millennial kingdom. And that's the great white throne judgment. We don't have time. You can go look at their Revelation chapter 20, 11 and following. And it talks about how they're all brought up and they stand before God. And then he casts them into the lake of fire. And they have new bodies at that time that will go into the lake of fire and never be burnt up. I want to read to you two other passages. I know what time it is, but I think we can do it quick enough. 
I want to read to you two other Old Testament passages that showed all along that God has a plan for the Old Testament saints and that they too were going to live in a resurrected body on this earth. Go with me to Isaiah 26, verses 19 through 21. Now, a lot of people try to make this apply to the church. I don't think it does. I think, now, it definitely applies to us in the sense that the same thing is happening to us in a sense. But I believe this was written to the nation of Israel. Isaiah 26, look at verses 19 through 21. Talking to the nation of Israel, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people. Enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and no one no more will cover its slain. I think we see a wonderful picture where God says to the nation of Israel, those who are the righteous dead, come stay with me for a little while till I finish what I got to do on the earth. But your dead will live. Oh, you want even further proof that the Old Testament taught that there was a resurrection and an actual physical body and they'd live on the earth? Go with me to the book of Job. Most likely the very first book ever recorded. Job chapter 19. Look at verses 23 through 27. Job says, Oh, that my words were written... Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and one day he's going to stand on the earth. And in that time, even though my flesh has been destroyed, I know in my flesh I'm going to see him and I'm going to have a new body. And I can't wait for that day. Isn't that cool? Folks, let me just tell you, there's a resurrection of the righteous when we get new bodies and it comes in phases. Jesus is the first and then you get the thing with Matthew 27, but we know the rapture's next, and then the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints at the end of days are resurrected, get their new body, and we live in the millennial kingdom. Now, i got to be honest with you, there's still another group that hasn't even quite been referenced yet, but I don't have time to get into it, and that's the group of people that live righteously during the millennial kingdom, who eventually die. The Bible doesn't list when they get their resurrected bodies, but we know God's going to give them one as well for them to dwell with Him for eternity. The Bible doesn't say when they get it. It's not referenced at all. But we know there'll be righteous people during the millennial kingdom who live and are given righteousness. But there's also a resurrection of the unrighteous. L let me read real quickly, last passage, and then I'm going to let you go. John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Jesus is speaking here, and He says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That doesn't happen all at the same time. But every single person who's ever lived is going to be resurrected. The first resurrection has phases, and that's for those of us who have had faith in Christ and God's provision for our sins, and He's given us righteousness. We will be resurrected to live forever with Him, even during the millennial kingdom, and then the state after that called the eternal state. There is a resurrection of the unrighteous as well, and they're going to be resurrected to go stand before His throne, be judged, and sent into the lake of fire for eternity. So did Paul know that everybody was going to be resurrected? So when he said, I hope to attain to the resurrection of the dead, he wasn't saying, I hope I rise from the dead. He knew everybody rises from the dead. He says, I, well, how did I put it in my notes? Let me read it to you one more time. He said, even though Jesus has already made him his own, he wants everything that will be his or can be his in the future time called the resurrection of the righteous. We're going to deal with that next week in great detail. We're going to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you can go there ahead of time if you want to study up for next week. In verses 1 through 10, where he says, We make it our aim to please God because we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to receive in our body, we're going to receive in eternity what we have done in our body here on this earth, whether good or evil. It's not tied to our sin. It's tied to what he wants to do through us in this life. And folks, let me just tell you, my prayer is that all of a sudden the things of this life go out the window and you get so focused on the life to come you start to store up treasure in heaven. You say, Jim, it's awful late for me. Ah, that's the good news about God. It's never too late. It's never too late. I'm going to show you a passage in Joel where it says he'll even repay us for the years the locusts have eaten. He is a generous God who wants to bless us. And if we're willing to say, I'm ready to live for you, he'll say, good, let's go and watch what I can do. And I want you to understand, this life is not the real thing. I live in the real world, Jim. No, you don't. You live in the temporary world that was created for a season. The real world has already existed, and one day you're going to see it. This is a temporary one. And so, folks, my prayer is that when we start to look at what Paul said, forgetting what is behind and straining what is toward what's ahead. If anybody had reason to say, man, I've wasted a lot of years, it would be Paul. But he didn't say that, did he? He said, man, I've only got a few short years on this earth to live for the Lord, and I'm going to live them all out for the Lord. And if you are mature, you'll think the same way. Father, again, thank you for this chance to open your word. We covered a lot tonight, I know that, but I thank you that your word is able to take root and uh, affect us in ways that even if I said it like the guy making the micro machine commercials, Lord, you're able to make it stick in and, and, and make sense to us. So, Lord, tonight we just simply say this. Apart from you, we can't even have this heart's desire. We can't desire more of you. You have to even give us that because it's you who works in us, both to will and to act according to your good purpose. But do you wait for us to be willing to make that decision or to at least ask you. Father, show us, show us where it is it applies to us. May we not look at our brothers and sisters and say, you ought to be doing this or that. Lord, may we be living the way that you tell us to and what it looks like for each of us. And Lord, I look forward to that day when we'll stand before you and we can be ready. Whether we're ready now or in that day to come, we're ready because of what you're going to do. We pray this in your name. Amen. As your children, Father, we have allowed what happens in this world to determine what we believe more than we have your word. We thank you for the fact that you save us because you've given us that promise. My prayer is that mine, as well as everyone else's that's listening here tonight, that our eyes of our hearts would be open. That you'd give us wisdom 
from your spirit and revelation so that we would know you better. We know this power that's available. Oh, Lord, may we not try to get this power so we can go do amazing things for you. Lord, may we just receive the amount that you have for us so that we can experience what you have for each of us. And whatever comes out of it, we'll leave that for you. I want to know you better. I want to know you better. May that be our heart's cry. And may you put that in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.